All right. This is good. And it's great uh, to have Carlos be our first uh, online uh, speaker here. Um, I'm really pleased to have him introduce himself to you uh, through this. But I, I just to give you a little bit of background, um, so um, Carlos has, has been working in plant breeding for a very long period of time in, an, in a number of different capacities. Um, I should say that I guess he's a uh, – joint citizen Uruguayan and U.S. citizen. He uh, got his uh, B.S. in agronomy um, in Uruguay, and then he uh, got his uh, master's and his Ph.D. at Iowa State University um, in plant breeding. Um, he then um, went on to um, a position um, at SEAT, uh, which is a uh, one of the uh, CGIRs, one of the Global uh, Plant uh, Breeding Institutes, um, and he was the lead in uh, cassava uh, germplasm development. And um, he did that for quite a few years, from uh, 1989 to uh, 1998. So uh, then he moved on uh, to the Weaver Popcorn Company, which uh, is very, actually very important. He was the director of popcorn hybrid research, um, and then from there, he went on, to, he was there for quite a while too. And then he went on to Syngenta Seeds and um, has uh, moved in the ranks uh, there. And uh, maybe we'll tell you a little bit about that. But uh, today, he's going to actually talk about something that he uh, spoke with me about a couple of weeks ago, which is really intriguing in terms of thinking about um, sort of disruptive biotechnologies. Uh, he'll be t talking to us a lot about how we may move from rearing plants to rearing fungi or uh, yeast and, and so on. And uh, I, I have to say that maybe this uh, interest comes from the fact that he's a bread baker. Uh, but uh, he's a very interesting person who actually just took on the position at NC State as the director of our plant breeding initiative. So he is tasked with the job of pulling together something like 25 to 30 plant and animal breeders too, I guess, at, at NC State in terms of uh, developing a very uh, unified uh, perspective. So I'll turn it over to Carlos. Okay. Well, thank you, Fred. Um, uh, thanks, everybody, for attending. Uh, first of all, you guys can hear me well. Uh, Todd, can you yes. hear me? Well? You sound you sound great. So all right, all right. <clears throat> well, thank you so much. And uh, I just want to start with a uh, disclaimer, in a sense, um, because what I'm going to talk about may sound like I want to exterminate cattle from the planet, uh, and that's not the case. I'm coming from a country where we have uh, 12 million cattle and uh, 3 million people, so each of us sort of own four cattle, uh, four cows. Um, and uh, yeah, that's Uruguay, um, and I've been raised on a diet of uh, three, three meals of beef, basically, uh, actually two. Not so much for breakfast, although I know that people that um, also eat beef for breakfast. So, um, quite quite contrary to that, I mean, um, it's, it's to put some dimensions of 
how the protein market, the food protein market has evolved and where it's going and the consequences of that and how we can um, contribute to make sure that it is supplied but in a sustainable way and in a, um, in a way that we don't uh, destroy the planet going into the future. So <clears throat> thanks so much for the introduction. Yes, I'm, I'm coming from a from an agricultural background, um, raised in a in the southwest corner of Uruguay, uh, a lot of agriculture, a lot of cattle there, and uh, I couldn't escape from that. I had to study agronomy, and, and then uh, very earlier on, I got in love with genetics, and uh, so um, I was able to realize that dream. <clears throat> from my professional career, I will say that I, I've been blessed and fortunate to have gained experience uh, in different production systems from very well-developed production systems like here in the Midwest um, and Central Brazil, the Cerrados of Brazil, for example, um, <clears throat> to less, much less developed systems like uh, subsistence agriculture in, in Africa, Northern uh, uh, Latin America and places like that. So that has put me in contact with uh, different types of production, different types of uh, systems. Um, also, I've been blessed to work in species that have uh, different reproductive systems, uh, which pose particular challenges when you do breeding and trading progression. So I've been working in, with vegetatively propagated crops, cross-pollinated crops, and self-pollinated crops. Um, but most importantly, uh, I've been able to uh, have worked in different, uh, for different value chains, for different, for different markets. Um, land breeding is one of the columns that sustain markets in the world, okay? Plant breeding itself is, is not an isolated science. It has value as long as it is integrated into, into markets. Uh, and sometimes it happens that plant breeding helps develop markets. It happens to me in the popcorn sector, which is, is uh, some people may, I mean, depending on how you see it, uh, it may be some of my darkest years or some of my most fun years when I worked in popcorn. Uh, we were able to create a couple of markets based on the diversity we, we were observing and together with the people in, in, in food science and marketing, put things uh, that had a lot of value, okay? So <clears throat> that experience, I think, has been great, okay? Uh, working in diversity of systems, diversities of uh, reproductive systems and uh, markets, okay? So as, as Fred said, two or three weeks ago, we got together uh, and we started talking about uh, the area of research I was going to start here at NC State. Coming from the private sector, I didn't bring any research with me, okay? So this gives me the opportunity to start uh, uh, from, basically from scratch, uh, a new research program, okay? And uh, as I said, plant breathing, my perspective is plant breathing is, is a part of a value chain. It has to be a part of a value chain, everything that you do. And therefore, my first task was to define which was the value chain I wanted to work. And I decided to work for the, for the food protein value chain, and particularly for the plant-based protein value chain. Okay? And 
And, and doing that, in so doing that, my first task was to start contacting different stakeholders, different players. And I came across uh, a world that is, was uh, unknown to me at the beginning. And as Fred said, it's, it's pretty exciting and intriguing. And, and um, not only the world of plant-based proteins, but the world of fermentation, okay? And how people are seeing fermentation as the ultimate, um, pro the ultimate production type that is going to supply proteins in the world, okay? It's, there's that group of people, okay? So, and of course, there's a group of people that loves cattle and uh, say, you guys are crazy. Okay, so let's. Uh, I have uh, about 13, 14 slides, not too many, so I hope you guys don't get too bored by my presentation. So here is the evolution of uh, the production and the projected demand for meats. And, and on the left, upper left side, you have meats and uh, eggs. Um, and you see that um, it's been quite steep. Um, and we're going to talk a bit more about that, particularly in the case of Asian countries when you have uh, demand for protein, and here milk, is, milk protein is included. That's why these two graphs don't translate one to the other, but, um, but you see that particular Asian countries, even if you take into consideration that the, the demand for China may taper down a bit, there will be other countries that will pick up the demand for proteins, for animal proteins into the future. So, um, so far, if you look at um, on the upper left uh, corner graph, uh, we have been able to supply that demand. And it has been through uh, different avenues that that improvement has come. Uh, expansion of uh, grasslands and cultivated lands for grains that go into animal production. The other one could be the improvement in production system, animal production systems. And the third one, of course, is animal genetics, animal breeding, okay? So because of all that, um, the productivity of animal systems has increased considerably in the world, particularly in the developing world. Now, the question is, with increasing the population and the projected demand per capita, which is at the right upper corner there, that's the projected demand per capita of proteins. If you multiply that by the projected 9, 9.5 billion people by 2050, it will require between 50 and 60% higher production of proteins, animal proteins in the world. Now, how do we get to that when we basically have uh, almost maxed out the, uh, the production acres where uh, the production system, the animal production system have been very effective, but uh, a lot of people see that as a, at a cost. Um, uh, and we, we hear a lot about uh, not only animal well-being, but also uh, some of the... Uh, excessive use of hormones, for example, um, and things like that. Um, so there may not be much room for improvement there. And of course, on the genetic side, there could be, there's a continuous progress in genetics, but it's a diminishing return, okay? Uh, we have gained so much, gains in the future are not as high as gains in the past, okay? So 
If you look at the, uh, what we're currently eating in the world in terms of proteins, it's very interesting because most of us are eating uh, a lot more protein than we need, particularly when it comes to animal protein. Okay? So if you look at that bar there in the middle, in the lower right corner, that's the average daily protein requirement. And most of, most of the people in the world consumes more. Uh, than the daily requirement. What is interesting is only one group that consumes more just with vegetable proteins. That's, uh, that's the Middle East. Okay. Uh, so that says a lot. I mean, there's an overconsumption of protein. Um, and uh, a lot, a, a big part of the world, if you include India, Asia, and Sub Saharan Africa, which are large chunks of population, um, they, they are right there about what the consumption, average consumption per, per capita is. And of course, if you look at the different diet types, the more vegetable-based a diet is, the lower the carbon footprint, because basically you eliminate an intermediary, which is the animal, okay? And some animals are more efficient than others. So depending on the animal that you take away from that uh, uh, food chain, uh, the efficiency will be less or more, okay? So when I started working in plant breeding, um, we were trying to produce more food. Food security was, uh, was the goal, okay, at that time. And that was through the pro increased production of food. That's the uh, the main uh, driver for was the main driver for the green revolution. Okay. Nowadays, uh, you guys, students that are going to graduate and are going to work in agriculture, uh, it, it's, it's a bit more complex than that. What is demanded from food production and agriculture itself? Uh, so we're talking about food availability and affordability. Now, when we talk about food security, it's not just the amount of food that is produced. How affordable it is, how much people can afford of that food. Okay? Uh, but it's also questions about nutrition and quality and safety and sustainability and transparency. I mean, more and more, the demands from the people that consume of food are, um, are more complex. Okay? So I want to check with Todd, are we okay with, still with sounds and, and uh, the graphics? Everything looks great and sounds oh. great. Just let me know, okay? If, uh, okay. So, so the current animal protein production is characterized by a lower energy conversion uh, um, in, uh, into meat products. Um, you guys may have heard, but cows are a considerably uh, large gas emitters, okay? When it comes to methane gas, um, they're, they're, I would say pretty bad. Um, they emit as much gas uh, in total. Cattle emits as much gas as uh, vehicles. Okay, uh, and of course, there's uh, the efficiency with which nitrogen is used is pretty low. From the uh, nitrogen that we put in the field, if you look at what percent actually we consume in average is between 10 and 15 percent. So there's big losses in nitrogen in those systems, okay? And nitrogen is by far the most expensive of all the uh, 
elements that go into the production of food, okay? So, um, that's the big, I'm going to exemplify with a beef burger, um, which is debated when it was created, but sometimes in the end of the 19th century, and that was based on animal protein, and it took quite a bit long to come up with a product that emulates that, um, and that's the plant-based burgers, which you guys may have seen that in your supermarkets or in your uh, even in some of the fast food chains now showing up. Um, and uh, there's somehow an explosion of those type of products right now, okay, that are plant-based, okay, and that's the market I'm, I'm planning to work for. But it goes beyond that because it is expected by the middle of this century we will see some fermentation-based uh, burgers. And I don't know what the name they're going to give to those products. Of course, it's not going to be fermentation-based because I think it has bad connotation. But uh, what it is, is uh, the production of proteins through fermentation processes. So yeast that have been genetically modified to produce certain types of proteins in a digester, okay? And you just provide a source of energy, which would be glucose, uh, and, and, and a source of nitrogen, which can be ammonia or, or any other types of nitrogen, and the yeast will spit out the protein that you program the yeast to produce. Okay? And of course, everybody has heard about the cultured beef uh, burger, which uh, I think is sold for a few thousand dollars, the first one that was produced. Um, it is possible to produce it. The, the, the question is, can it be scaled up at a price and at an uh, amount that can really make a dent in the uh, conventional meat products? And we expect that if that's going to happen, it will be probably another 10, 15 years for that to happen. Okay? So when it comes to the, protein, the food protein markets, um, all these uh, product diversification product research is aiming at uh, disrupting food production technology uh, with a positive impact uh, on the sustainability part of producing proteins. Um, it also has the possibility of improving our nutritional health and of course it has the possibility to provide more transparency uh, for the production and processing of foods. Um, I think it's a very interesting time. I'm, I'm not a vegetarian, and I'm not a vegan person, uh, but I think it's a very interesting time for, for uh, people that is vegetarian because with all these diversity of products, I think it makes, uh, it makes life uh, more, in, probably, I won't say more enjoyable, but easier to eat, I would say, okay? Now, I have been studying some of these products, and I can tell you that from the nutritional perspective, they're not as good as they should be, okay? Like the Impossible Burger, if you look at the ingredients, if you look at the nutritional information, is as bad as the, uh, as the, uh, the Impossible Whopper is, on, is as bad as a real Whopper, okay? So, in an effort to emulate the animal product so much that people cannot distinguish when they eat a plant-based burger from a real burger, they have gone to the extremes of making it quite unhealthy, okay? 
but I think there's room for improvement, okay? Um, and and, and uh, we can hope that that's the case, okay? So, is this the pathway to achieve that uh, disruption in the, in the protein production markets? We think, we think it is, okay? So, as I said, there's this diversity of products right now hitting the market from uh, plant-based shrimp, which is good news. I'm allergic to, to, to seafood and, and shrimp in particular, so I'm pretty happy about this. Um, uh, pea protein uh, milk, uh, and we have beef, uh, plant-based beef, eggs, uh, chicken, and even pork. Um, one aspect of all these products is um, if you have gone to the supermarket and look at uh, how much they cost, they're not very affordable by a lot of people. Okay? Uh, I was uh, interested in testing uh, ripple milk, and uh, a 48-ounce uh, container was uh, $6 here in the supermarket uh, in Chapel Hill. So that's an equivalent of about $16 a gallon of milk, which is... Uh, quite a hefty price compared to real milk. Um, so you really now have to be very, very conscious about the environment to buy that milk, I would say. And what goes into those $6 is, I think it's a very hefty technology fee. All these are um, startup companies that have invested a lot in developing the technology to make this product um, appealing and, uh, and demanded. Uh, so a big technology fee, and also uh, the great majority of these products are being produced in California, okay? Uh, not only is some a higher production cost there, but uh, you have the transportation of those products uh, across the country that makes it more uh, expensive. And they're being produced with uh, ingredients that are not produced in California, like peas, for example. Um, so. The expectation is that we can scale up uh, and make it more affordable, this production, by developing technology, support technology in other regions like North Carolina, for example. The aim of my research is to uh, support the possibility of creating a hub here in North Carolina for the production of plant-based product, for example, plant-based protein products. Okay? Um, we think that with more players coming into the market, that technology fees should go down, um, and that will create a, a more accessible uh, plant-based product, plant-based protein products, okay? Um, definitely, we don't want this to be a segregationist uh, uh, market in which only a few can afford, when it can have a big impact when a lot of people can afford it. So, as I said, I was going to talk about fermentation as a possibility of producing these proteins. And uh, there's a few proteins that are being produced in fermentation right now. Lysine is one of them, and monosodium glutamate is another protein that is being, amino acids, I would say, components of protein that are being produced in fermentation. Now, how close can we get to maximal efficiency when we produce protein, particularly through fermentation? So if you have one person, the average daily requirement for protein is about 57 grams per day, and uh, provided that that protein has the right uh, assembly of amino acids um, to sustain a healthy life, 
You, to produce those amino acids, you need a source of energy, like glucose, that can be derived from corn or sugar cane if you are in the tropics, and a source of uh, nitrogen, that's, as I said, can be ammonia coming from the Haber-Bosch uh, process. Okay. If you scale that to the whole world of 7.6 billion people at the moment, you would be able, theoretically, theoretically, to supply all the protein needs for that world with 21 million hectares of corn per year. Okay, that's very interesting. Uh, that, that gives you a, a, a dimension of the efficiency that you can gain in the event that you can do this, because there are only there are 40 million hectares of corn in the U.S. So, with almost half of the corn area in the U.S., you could theoretically, theoretically, um, provide, um, supply the demand for just protein. We're not talking about starch, other elements that make a diet or a person, okay? Of course, if you eat 57 grams, you go hungry, for sure. Um, but in the case of protein, I mean, that's, that's the dimension of the efficiency of producing proteins uh, directly through fermentation by using a cheap source of energy and, and uh, nitrogen. Okay. So only 1.5% uh, of the global arable land could, uh, could fix the carbon that is needed to supply the protein for the world. Okay. So the group that is behind this um, promotion of uh, fermentation as the need to provide proteins into the future uh, have produced several reports. One of them is this, this latest report, we think, I think it was released uh, one or two years ago. Uh, and in, you can see how the projected evolution of cost of production of protein through fermentation is, uh, is depicted there. Um, it's supposed to be at 10 kilos, uh, $10 per kilo of protein by mid this, this decade and about a dollar per kilo in 2035. They foresee that when it reaches a dollar, because of all the other elements that go into converting that protein that's produced through fermentation into a product that is, looks like a burger or looks like chicken nugget or looks like a shrimp, um, once you have one dollar per kilo, uh, which is about 50 cents per pound, um, then you can have things that are so uh, affordable to people, and if they taste good and appealing, then you can drive the demand from there. And if that happens, then will be a significant reduction in the population of cattle and other, uh, other animals too. So that report also shows the evolution of the cost per unit of, in this case, is um, milk protein through fermentation and uh, it's actually in, uh, at the moment there are some there's some production of ferment, uh, milk uh, protein through fermentation for the business to business market it's not for us to buy yet but it's suspected uh, is expected to hit the market in mid uh, mid this uh, decade okay um, if you look at how how the price uh, the cost of production has evolved. The same is for uh, for fermentation beef. Uh, it is expected that it could be competitive by, competitive by 2000, 
and 25, uh, 2000, and, sorry, next year. And the cell base, which is the, the culture beef, uh, it is expected to be competitive, competitive with cow beef for 2025. That's the projection, okay? So if that happens, and if we can drive the demand for these products uh, high enough, that makes a difference. Here you have a scenario of what could happen with the um, land for under production for maize and soybeans in the U.S., okay? So about 65% of all the production of those grain goes into feeding, uh, feeding animals, okay? And if the demand for fermentation and plant-based proteins increases as their projected will increase, then there will be a significant reduction of animals. And the question that group of people is asking is, what are we going to do with that land? Okay? I think it's, uh, it's something you guys need to, to take a close look at that because all this is based on a cost and the potential of being demanded. But the human factor, I mean, has to be considered. I mean, would there be demand for this type of products? And at the level that will make a significant difference. I read recently in a book that uh, uh, Dr. Bob Patterson shared with me, um, that it takes about 50 years for a significant change in diet in a society. At least it used to take, mainly nowadays with uh, different means of communication, we can shorten that up. So all these projections that this group is making is pretty short term. Um, I think we, we're probably going to go there that way, but it probably the time frame is a bit too too fast, uh, and, and I think in the meantime, plant-based proteins have uh, a place to, uh, to be and to play, okay? Now, if you look at industrial fermentation, what are the products that currently are being produced uh, competitive, uh, competitively? Insulin is one of them, okay? Most of the insulin that is used nowadays to, um, to treat patients with uh, diabetes is produced through fermentation with yeasts. Uh, and bacteria. Uh, stevia, uh, stevial uh, glycosides, uh, but it makes the, uh, the sweetener. Um, it, Cargill it recently opened a, a big plant uh, to produce it through fermentation. Okay, Stevia, uh, we do research on stevia here in North Carolina State. Uh, it's, it's kind of difficult to adapt. It's a subtropical, tropical plant, and um, and it's, it has not been domesticated yet, so the production through fermentation seems to have a, a, an edge for that, for a, for a steady supply into that market. Artemisinin is, is a drug um, <clears throat> that is used to treat malaria, and this was financed by the Gates Foundation, uh, the development of the yeast uh, that could produce through fermentation uh, artemisinin. And uh, there are a couple of plants uh, for the production of that in Europe at the moment. Okay. And recently, I think it was a couple of years ago, probably less than that, it was announced that there's a company that has um, developed uh, fermentation processes for the production of cannabinoids, which I think it may, uh, it may mean uh, somehow um, an end to the... Uh, to the hemp bust, I will say. Um, if cannabinoids can be produced um, with the uh, 
with the quality that is required for fermentation, I think this, this would, be a, would be very competitive. So, but the question is, all these products are considerable high, high value and uh, the amount that is needed is not as great as in the case of producing through fermentation protein that you consume daily, okay? So we're talking about a, a much, uh, the scale is, is, is much larger, okay? So what is the road ahead for, for fermentation for, for, uh, to supply the, the protein markets? Well, it has to be scalable, okay? And that is only, will only happen through process optimization, through uh, genomics and data analytics and, uh, and machine learning. Uh, that's the way that in, you can get more effective development of yeast uh, on organisms that can put under fermentation and produce different types of proteins, okay? Ideally, you should be able to have different strains that produce different types of proteins that can go into different markets, okay? Uh, that's the ideal part. Um, also, the fermentation process as it is right now is on batches, uh, and there is a, a considerable work uh, going into a constant, continuous flow fermentation, which is much more efficient, okay? When you have fermentation in batches, you start a batch, it increases the production of proteins, it takes, and then you harvest the protein and you have to start a batch again. On a continuous flow, the process is kept at the maximum efficiency all the time. So you should get a, a price that is competitive for that product. As I said, product versatility through the production of different types of protein that are more readily available to be converted into like a ground beef type of product or a chicken nugget. And of course, consuming, consumer acceptance is, is key, okay? In the meantime, until we get, we realize all these efficiencies through fermentation, I think, and a lot of people think that plant-based proteins have a big room to occupy uh, and to open up that market of the uh, replacing animal proteins through uh, plant products, okay? And one, um, we talk about artemisinin, and this is an article that uh, appeared in, in Nature, uh, I think it's Nature Biotechnology, about uh, artemisinin and how a process that, that promised to be the solution for a steady supply of a drug that could change the life of so many people in the tropics uh, by treating malaria, sort of came into some hiccups. Um, and the reason was that this company, Sanofi, the French company, when they invested in the plant production plant, their business case was based on a $500 per kilo product. And the, and the <clears throat> price of artemisinin has fluctuated from 1200 to 200 And in the last three or four years, there has been an overproduction in China and India of artemisinin from natural sources. And, uh, and of course, the company decided to sell that plant to another company because it was below the 500 uh, break-even point. Just to make a short story, uh, a long story short is, I mean, fermentation looks promising, but you had to make it work and uh, it will take some time to fine tune. So, we're formulating a program here at NC State for plant-based protein is, uh, first question is, um, uh, 
what type of support research um, we need to establish to make sure that we can attract this industry here to North Carolina. And of course, developing adaptive germplasm is one of them for species that can uh, be utilized in this, in this, uh, this value chain. But we have another advantage here in, at NC State, and that's the, the food science part, the, the, the food innovation lab. And I've been uh, closely interacting with them, sort of planning what we're going to do once we have this research going. Um, so in terms of species, I'm going to work, be working in pea breeding. It's called it's yellow peas. When you, you guys remember the experience from Mr. Gregor Mendel, he crossed the green and wrinkle by the yellow and smooth. Well, the green and wrinkle is the one that you eat in your soup. It's the green peas, the ones that you buy frozen or fresh. These ones are the yellow and smooth, okay? That's what called the yellow or field peas, okay? Uh, there's some companies that are using soybeans uh, as uh, the base for the plant-based protein. And of course, these uh, soybeans are somehow ideal because there's this uh, crop in which it has been a lot of breeding, uh, there's a lower production cost. But um, the problem with soybeans is a lot of these products are being positioned as non-GM. And segregating non-GM soybeans from GM soybeans in this country is quite difficult. So in the case of peas, it has that advantage, okay? Plus also there's some uh, negativity uh, against uh, for soybeans. And, and uh, so, so peas seems to be the protein source that is somehow uh, preferred for these products. Um, I'm going to be doing research on, on, on all the other alternative species that can uh, be converted into plant-based uh, protein products like cow peas, mung beans, and, and others, okay? But not breeding, it's just exploratory work. In the case of peas, um, NC State already has uh, some work going on in, in peas as cover crop. Dr. Chris uh, Rever Horton is in charge of that. So we're not studying from scratch. Um, also, peas feed very well the rotation because they're grown in the winter months. In fact, depending on the length of this cycle, uh, they can feed perfectly on a, on a dual crop uh, system in North Carolina, which is extremely good. Okay? Um, the state already produced some peas, um, not a lot. I think there's like 4,000 acres of peas, but there is some experience. And there are also alternative markets uh, for peas. So I'm not going to play all, place all my eggs on the plant-based protein markets. It's good that we have alternative markets in case that doesn't pan out. And this is my finance slide. So my fir the first part of my work in establishing this program was to establish a target uh, product profile for my breeding program, what I was going to be looking for. And in doing so, I had been interacting with a lot of players in the market. Um, had conversations with the uh, with people in possible needs and uh, beyond needs, uh, as well as seed companies and uh, ingredient companies like Ingrid Iron in Indiana. And what was interesting, aside from the agronomic part, which of course we need to have higher stable grain yield and total protein. Uh, as I said, we need to have a short cycle for the plant to feed into the rotation system, good early vigor, disease-resistant plant type, etc. 
they're mainly interested in the output traits like nutritional value, the one, the one varieties of genotypes that have proteins that are not too far from the profile of the uh, animals. That means they don't have severe deficiencies in certain amino acids. Okay, that would be essential. And the second, but probably it's not the second, it's the most important aspect that after is what they call the no plant flavor. They say they spend a lot of money trying to get rid of the plant flavor in order to make them more uh, look similar to animal, uh, to put the animal flavors on top. And uh, looking um, uh, with the people at Canapolis, so, uh, what are those products? And uh, we, we're talking about saponins and the complex of unsaturated fatty acids and lipoxygenase. Uh, we're talking about methos, uh, methoxy pyrazines and, uh, and at the final product, we're talking about hexanols. Uh, hexanols can come from different pathways and hexanols can be solved through processing like heating of the peas of the pea flour. So we're going to focus basically on those three first ones, the saponins, the complex between fatty acids, uh, unsaturated fatty acids, and oxygenase, and the methoxypyracines. So, uh, so that's, that's what um, I wanted to present to you. This is a market that is very dynamic, okay? And a market that a lot of the people I, I start talking to, some of my friends, they shake their heads and they say, well, no, I want my steak. And, and you can have your steak, but realistically, the world cannot have, everybody that wants a steak may not be able to have it in the future, okay? And these technologies that try to disrupt the market, um, I think we're going somewhere with them. The plant-based proteins, one of, one of the reasons why I say we're going somewhere is that because most of the major animal protein companies, including Tyson, Hormel, Smithfield, uh, Cargill, they're all starting the plant-based protein divisions. And they're renaming their companies to be protein companies, not animal companies, protein companies protein production companies. So it means that when they started fighting the plant-based protein markets and they started joining, that means there is a lot of promise there. And I think we're going somewhere with this, okay? We just need to make it uh, appealing, attractive, and competitive uh, to the regular protein products, and I think we're, we're heading somewhere. Todd uh, and Fred, uh, that's all I have to present today. That was great. Thanks so much. Um, so just a reminder, if you have... I was afraid I had lost you. So no, I was here. <laughs> my, my system is so far working. So we'll see now how the question and answer period goes. Okay. Um, so if people have a question, if you hit the raise hand uh, icon, I will unmute you and we will start with uh, Eli. Go ahead, Eli. Hey. Um... Thank you for the talk. Um, I just wanted to ask specifically about the peas and fitting into um, rotations. Um, how tight is the, like the range of, of parameters that you're looking at? So, you know, do you have like a couple weeks of growing season that you can fit into? Actually, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by uh, the flexibility that we can have because 
you can start planting winter peas at the end of October, uh, and you can plant, and you can end up planting in February spring peas, okay, and still harvest everything in May and be able to plant soybean crop after that. Mm. Okay? Um, and actually, the use of equipment that is done, um, it, it fits pretty well with the farmers because they're planting at the time which, they, well, they're done harvesting wheat or other crops, so, okay, they're planting at their leisure. Uh, and they're harvesting basically at their leisure too because it's before they harvest wheat. So in that sense, um, and, and, and I'm telling you from the experience with peas as cover crops, um, but also in, in the, the few acres that there are there of pea production, they're not putting a lot of uh, um, a lot of inputs into the crop. I mean, they had to pay a lot for the seed because the seed is imported from North Dakota or Canada. Uh, so that's the highest expense. I think they spend uh, 80 to to $100 per acre of seed. But that's it, basically. That, that's all they do. I mean, they don't, they don't do much in terms of adding uh, inputs into the system. And that's how it works. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Daniela, you, uh, go ahead. Hi, um, thank you, Carlos, for your lecture. Um, I really appreciate uh, how you use and how you see very uh, different perspectives uh, to look at these issues. So my question to you is, is um, how do you see the impact of switching the meat production to a more industrialized meat development um, in developing countries where the growing population is coming from? And I ask you that because I come from a region where we have very few industrialized or processed food in comparison to the U.S. And most of the food that we have in, in small towns are produced by local uh, farmers or local producers. And I wonder then how uh, this switch can incentivate the industrialization in those regions and take out the jobs from many uh, families or um, farm families and which can also have a bad impact into the environment. Yeah, that's a very valid question. I'm not saying um, we have the answer to everything, but I was, uh, 10 days ago, I overlapped with one of the managers at uh, Novoscience. Uh, Novoscience, very famous at NC State because they're supporting some of our programs. But Novozyme is a major player in not only in the enzymes, but also in the organisms for fermentation, okay? And um, when I asked the question, how you guys, um, how you guys are advancing plans for protein production through fermentation, I think, I don't know if I caught him off guard, but he, he sounded surprised that I was asking that. And then suddenly he sort of opened up and he said, well, yeah, we, we have a, a think tank dedicated to that. And he says, it's not as easy as you may think. And the, the drivers for, for the, their thoughts is that they need to place the big fermentation units in places where there's cheap uh, sources of energy, meaning glucose, um, either derived from starch, from cornstarch in the Midwest, or in Brazil uh, from sugar cane, okay? 
Um, so there's a lot of, um, it, yeah, the risk is that this becomes even more centralized than um, like, um, I don't know, Swift meets or Smith fields. I mean, they, they probably be, if, if fermentation progresses in the way this group thinks it's going to move, it's going to be very industrialized. Now, if you look, I have a, and I share with, with Fred before, there's a group of uh, scientists in, uh, there's a startup company in California that is working on continuous fermentation process. And, uh, and their um, future scenario is that they can develop chips with this yeast that have particular sequence that can cope for given proteins. And with the equipment they sell, it's just you plug in the chip and you are, whatever you are, in Africa, wherever you are, you can produce. Basically, you can produce the same protein everywhere as long as you have a source of energy that can come from sugarcane, can come from cassava starch from anywhere, and a source of nitrogen. Okay? So the advantage is that is that you enable people to produce the protein. The disadvantage, as you said, Daniela, is that this may take away the production from a family basis or from more subsistence type of production. But here's what the beauty of this is, is we have time to think, okay, well, if, if that person is making a living from cattle, uh, gets um, affected by all this technology, what else, okay? And that what else is, is a lot of, uh, believe it or not, there's a lot of thought um, on a time in which we're living until recently uh, thinking that the price of land is going to be skyrocketing because of the demand of food and things like that. These people think the contrary. They think that there's going to be a collapse in the price of land because fermentation is going to make it collapse. So mm -hmm. what do we do with that land? And we're talking about paying for carbon fixed sequestration. We're talking about different potential scenarios. You may think this is kind of science fiction, but it is there, okay? If, if, if this comes to reality, we may have a problem that is contrary to the one that we have now in terms of land scarcities. What are we going to do with the land? It seems unbelievable, but it is. Okay. It's a reality. So, but your question, I, I, I don't know how to answer it, but I think it's because we have time ahead of us, we can work on that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. By the way, where are you coming from? Oh. Daniela? I come from Brazil and actually my, I live um, in Rio Grande do Sul, which is just besides Uruguay. So yeah. I have been in Uruguay a lot and I see the, the cattle production there. Okay. Well, you said you don't have much industrialization. I've been to and, and uh, Lucas of Rio Verde, they have the largest processing chicken factory in the world. Mm. It's, I mean, if you look, if you go to the Mato Grosso area, because it's so far from the ports that it, they pay as much for transporting a ton of corn as the value of the ton of corn to Sao Paulo, they're starting to process the corn into animal protein there and exporting the animal protein. This is unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Dr. Sepanova, go ahead. Uh huh. So I have a question about fungal protein. 
I, mean, I don't know if you've heard of the company Corn. I think it's a U.S.-based company, uh, sorry, U.K.-based company that produces microprotein, so from mycelium of some fungi. So mm -hmm. this seems to be like a really good niche, and it's not in the United States. So what do you know about the yeah, fungal? Yeah, we're talking with, um, I was talking with, uh, gosh, I forgot the name of the person, the, the, the uh, person that heads the Food Innovation Lab in Kannapolis. He comes from cardio, and uh, he's very interested in that, in that, as you mentioned, the fungi uh, proteins. Um, there are some products popping up. Uh, there are some companies that are, are bringing that concept here too, okay, the production protein through, through fungi. Um, yeah, I, I don't see why not. I mean, the, the products that are being brought into the market in this uh, domain, um, the diversity is, is amazing. Uh, algae, for example, is, is another possibility. I've been talking to people in the marine, marine science. Of course, algae has the potential, but it has the problems of how you scale it up. Okay? One thing is to produce algae for a few nutraceutical, nutraceutical products. The other thing is to produce algae for supplying protein for mass consumption. Okay? So There are different angles. Um, one angle that... Um, is people uh, thinking that we can explore more is, is what they call the, the DDGs coming out of the fermentation process for ethanol, which are very rich in protein. Of course, I mean, you probably will not eat a burger directly made of DDGs, but you can extract that protein, which is very, very cheap, and make it into products uh, that are more palatable. Of course, that uh, the farther away you are, from the product, your, your target product, the more it will cost for you to produce something that is looks like a burger or a chicken nugget, but it's possible. Fred, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just wanted to bring up, you know, we're talking a lot about the consolidation that could come from this, and that's clearly one path, but uh, we had a speak. I, I mentioned this to you, Carlos, we had a speaker the other week who was talking about consolidation mm -hmm. of the seed industry, but at the same time, that same person has been doing research on the, what, deconsolidation of the brewing industry. And here you have fermentation of beer, um, and, you know, it was consolidated, and now it's breaking up because of the accessibility of that fermentation technology. So I, I do wonder if there are niches for um, – this kind of production over time, there will be more, uh, I don't know what you want to say about it, um, you know, uh, small industries. I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think there are. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you can think of a, a gourmet uh, fermentation protein market in the future, <laughs> but I, I think there are. But, but looking strictly at terms of efficiency, yeah. Most effective because um, um, biofermentation processes are, are not cheap to establish, and, and, and the way you produce cheap product is through scale. Okay, um, and that, that's what I learned from the discussion with the noble science person. Uh, we need scale. We need proximity to sources of carbon and sources of energy. Okay, uh, it takes glucose and it takes energy in terms of electricity power uh, to run those fermentation processes. So 
from the efficiency point perspective, consolidation and, and massive production of proteins seems to be the most effective way. Now, how far down the road you want to go? It's, as I said, the other possibility is that in each region you have these mini fermentation processes providing, because then, then you have to manage transportation and, and all the consequences of that. Okay. So there may be a possibility for decentralization, avoiding that big centralization. All right, well, it is uh, the end of the hour. I want to thank you, Dr. Glacius, again for, um, for doing this for us. Um, we hope to have lots of collaborations um, now that you're here with us at, at NC State. Um, yeah, my contact information is there, and, uh, and you guys have it. I mean, uh, please, guys, do not hesitate to reach out to me. I'm uh, always happy to, to interact with people. And I want to thank everyone else for uh, the first uh, round of this. Um, Next week, we have uh, Dr. Rossano who's going to be talking about her research in plant disease. Um, so until then, um, stay safe, stay sane, uh, and, and take a deep breath, um, and we'll get to <laughs> All right. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Fred. Thanks so much, guys. Okay? And please, everyone, if you had any issues or concerns, please send me an email, um, and we will try to uh, address any of those. Sure. Bye now. Bye, everyone.